Father, again, we're thankful for the privilege and the joy of gathering together this morning as a body of, of redeemed sinners. And Lord, our statement of faith is what we just sang, that our righteousness is Jesus's life and our debt was paid by Jesus's death. And so, Lord, we come not standing on our own merit, not trusting in our own good works, not thinking that our singing or our preaching or our reading or our praying is meritorious, but looking to a Savior who has done it all for us. So thank you for Christ. Thank you that through Christ and through your Spirit, Lord, you are still at work in your people through your Word. And so, Lord, we turn this morning with uh, hungry hearts and submissive wills to hear you speak through Scripture. And God, we ask that you would do that clearly and powerfully, and Lord, that we would be changed and corrected and encouraged through it. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. Amen. Well, church, I'd encourage you to take a Bible this morning and open up with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We are studying through the book of Ecclesiastes right now as a church, and uh, we made it halfway through the seventh chapter last week. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7. You know, one of the categories of books that always tend to sell really well are self-help books. So if you go into a bookstore, if you go on Amazon, you can find scores of books that will tell you how to improve yourself, how, how to become a better gardener, or how to become a better carpenter, or how to be a better entrepreneur, or how to be a better cook, or just about anything you can think of. Those kinds of books usually sell like hotcakes especially if they're written by someone who we consider to be an expert. So there are best-selling books on coaching that have been written by Phil Jackson and Nick Saban. Uh, cookbooks by Paula Dean or Julia Childs tend to sell very well. If it's something written by somebody we think is an expert, we tend to think that there's something that we can learn from it. Well, right now we're studying Ecclesiastes, which is written by Solomon. And you'll remember that Solomon is writing this book to tell us where we can and where we can't find real joy and real contentment and real satisfaction in life. And Solomon is writing this book as an expert on the topic. Because Solomon had every resource you can imagine at his disposal trying to find something in this life under the sun that was satisfying. Solomon had more money than you could ever dream of. Solomon had more power than you and I will ever have. And he was able to give everything at his disposal to trying to find something that would satisfy him. He told us earlier in Ecclesiastes that he basically never told himself no about anything. If there was something he saw that he liked, he took it. If there was something he saw that looked interesting, he tried it. And after he tried everything this world has to offer, do you remember what his conclusion about it all was? He sums it up by saying, it is all vanity. That means everything this life, this world has to offer in the end is empty, it's short-lived, it's fleeting. We will never find anything in this world that truly satisfies. And that's because we were made by God and we live in a world that was made by God. And, and so the only way we ever find any real meaning and satisfaction in life is through relationship with God. Or to say it the other way, as long as I go through life disconnected from God, it doesn't matter what I try, it will all in the end prove to be chasing the wind. 
And that's why the key point that Solomon comes back to over and over in Ecclesiastes, this is how he's going to end the book in chapter 12. The key point that he keeps coming to is, so, fear God. That means everything in life begins and ends with recognizing God in his rightful position, right? Everything in life begins and ends with seeing God for who he is and recognizing that my life only makes sense in relationship to him. It comes from recognizing that I'm the creature and so I humble myself before the creator. I turn to him in faith and repentance. That, that's the core essential of finding real life. Well, once God is in his rightful place in my life, there's now a path that I'm called to live. I'm called to walk the pathway of, of wisdom. And that's what Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is about. It's a chapter that is filled with Proverbs. And Proverbs are wisdom statements. They, they tell us how to live God's way in God's world. And we looked at the first 14 verses of chapter 7 last week. And just to remind you, Solomon ends those first 14 verses by saying, one of the keys to finding real contentment in life is learning to rest in the sovereignty of God. One of the keys to finding real contentment in life is recognizing that life is filled with crooked parts. Have you figured this out in your own life? So often, this is what I have planned for my life. This is how I think my life will go. And instead, life curves away from that. So Solomon says life is filled with crookedness. Now that's not to say there aren't good days. There are tons of happy days in life. The point he made back in chapter 3 is that there are plenty of times to dance and plenty of times to celebrate and plenty of times to feast. But, Solomon says... There are also lots of times where we're left aching and lots of times where we're left mourning. And he says in chapter 7 that God, listen, that God appoints one as well as the other. Meaning, God is sovereign over both. So we thank God for the happy days and when things happen that we don't understand and that are hard, the key to contentment in life is learning to trust God. It's the old illustration about the knitting loom that you've heard a hundred times. But imagine a, a rug being knitted together on a loom where all sorts of different colors of thread are being used and this intricate pattern is being put together on this rug. But as long as you're stuck looking at that rug from underneath it, you don't see any of that. All you can see from the underside are a bunch of knots and twists and snarls, none of the different threads, none of the different colors make any sense at all. But from the top side, there's a pattern to it. From, from the top side, every dark thread and every bright thread are in perfect order. There's a plan to all of it. Well, the problem in life is we're stuck on the underside. We can't see all that God has going on. We can't see the reasons for all the threads that God is weaving together. And so in the end, what the Bible calls us to is to trust God. To rest in God's sovereignty. Recognize the fact that you and I are not in control. Now, that's easier said than done. Because the fact of the matter is, we like to be in control. 
Any control freaks here this morning that you like to think that you're in control of every aspect of life and if you just turn the right dials, you can make sure everything happens according to your plan. Well, that's what Solomon's going to address this morning. So he ended verses 1 through 14 by making the point, we're not in control, so we have to trust God. Well, this morning, he's going to point out some of the ways that we might be tempted to try to regain control. So maybe if I can get enough wisdom, maybe if I can learn enough and study enough and get smart enough, I can figure out how to regain control of the steering wheel of my life. Or maybe if I'm religious enough, Maybe if I check all the right religious boxes, maybe then I can twist God's arm and force Him to give me the things I want out of life. And so Solomon's going to highlight some of the ways that we try to regain control. And he's going to explain why it is so absolutely futile. So if your Bible's open to Ecclesiastes 7, we're picking up this morning in verse 15. And we'll read all the way through the first verse of chapter 8. So Ecclesiastes 7, beginning in verse 15, Solomon, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes these words. I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other. For he who fears God will escape them all. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. All this I've proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise. But it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceeding deep, who can find it? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here's what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I've found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Who is like a wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the sternness of his face is changed. Now there's a lot going on there, but hopefully by the end you'll see how it all fits together. So we're going to look at all this under four main points that I want you to see this morning. Number one, accept your lack of control. Accept your lack of control. Look at how he starts it again in verse 15. Solomon says, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There's a just man 
who perishes in his righteousness. And there's a wicked man who prolongs life in his wickedness. Do you see what Solomon's saying? He's saying life doesn't always make sense. I mean, if, if I was designing things, here's how I would design it. People who love the Lord and obey God's law and who treat others well, I would make sure those people never face trials and I'd make sure those people live long, healthy lives. And on the other hand, the people who ignore God and mistreat, shouldn't they be the ones who face all the trials and die an early death? I mean, isn't that the way life should go? But Solomon's looking around and that's not the way life often goes. And the Bible cues us in on that from the very beginning, doesn't it? Well, what's the very first story we're told in the Bible after Adam and Eve? You remember it's the story of their two sons, Cain and Abel. What was Abel like? Jesus refers to him as righteous Abel. Abel loved the Lord. Abel's heart wanted to follow God. He wanted to worship God. Meanwhile, what was his brother Cain like? Petty, vengeful, self-centered, idolatrous. Yet it's righteous Abel who gets cut down in the prime of life. And what happens to Cain? Cain lives a long life. He gets married. He has kids. He has grandkids. So the righteous man dies early and the wicked man lives a long life. And that, that same pattern gets repeated many times in the Bible and many times in church history. The greatest theologian America America's ever known, Jonathan Edwards, didn't even make it to the age of 50. Robert Murray McShane, the great Scottish pastor, who's an example of, of piety and godliness. Lots of people still today follow his yearly Bible reading plan. David Brainerd, the great missionary to the American Indians. His life inspired scores of people to go to the mission field. Both of those men died at the age of 29. I mean, faithful servants of God. Or in recent years, maybe, you've, maybe you know the name Nabil Qureshi. Nabil Qureshi was uh, raised in a... Pakistani-American home, devoutly Muslim home, family for generations have been committed to Islam. And while he was in college at the University of Virginia, debate team, he crossed paths with a Christian there. And for a couple years, they talked back and forth. And this Christian shared the gospel until by the end of the time there, Nabil Qureshi had turned from Islam and had put his trust in Jesus and actually gave his life to apologetics ministry. He became a defender of the Christian faith, traveling, defending Christianity. And then when he's in his early 30s, he gets diagnosed with an aggressive form of stomach cancer. And a year later, at the age of 34, he dies, leaves behind a wife and a young child, 34 years old. Meanwhile, meanwhile, the Hugh Hefners of the world live to 91 years old. And Solomon's saying, I look at life and it it doesn't make sense. If, if your view of life is that it operates according to some sort of spiritual karma system, where as long as you're doing good things, only good things will come back, like God's a divine cash register, you hand God good deeds and God only hands you good things in life in return, if that's your view of life, your worldview will come crashing down. Because that's not the way life works. Life is hard. Life is filled with challenges. So what that means is when life goes well, don't pat yourself on the back assuming it's all going well because you're so good. And on the other hand, when, when life is going through difficulties, that doesn't necessarily mean God's punishing you for something you've done that's bad. 
You have to trust God. And that leads us to one of the strangest passages in all of Ecclesiastes. You might have picked it up while I was reading. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. You don't find these verses on t-shirts. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before the time? What in the world does that mean? Don't be overly righteous. Don't be overly wicked. So Solomon's saying just kind of be in between. Be a little righteous and a little wicked and everything will be okay. Now remember, he's saying this right on the heels of verses 13 through 15. Where he just told us life doesn't always go the way we had planned. And what he's hitting on in these verses is he's, he's hitting on some of the ways we can be tempted to think we can regain control over our lives. So Solomon says, don't be overly righteous. We might call it self-righteous. Don't imagine that you can regain control of your life through your own personal righteousness. Don't imagine that if you just check all the right religious boxes that you'll somehow back God into a corner and He'll have to give you all the good things you want out of life. That's not the way it works. First, it doesn't work that way because you and I will never personally be righteous enough to deserve good things from God. Solomon's going to make that point clearly here in a few verses. But just to say it right now, the last thing you and I want to do is to demand that God give us what we deserve. Okay, Solomon's going to come back to that. But secondly, it doesn't work this way because that's just not how God works in this fallen world. There are so many people, listen to me now, there are so many people in this world who think that religion works like some kind of divine calculus problem. That if, if you add going to church plus saying your prayers plus giving your tithes plus reading your Bible a few times a week plus this, then it will equal a life of only health and only happiness and only prosperity but that's not the way life works. In fact, that's not Christianity. If that's your understanding of how faith works, that's not Christianity. That's idolatry. Okay, so the promise of Christianity, or let me say it the other way. We come to Christ because the ultimate prize is Christ. The Bible doesn't tell us to forsake everything and follow Jesus so that we'll get happiness and money and a new car. The Bible tells us to forsake everything and follow Jesus so that we'll get Jesus. He's the treasure hidden in the field. He's the, he's the pearl of great price. He's the one, according to John 17, it's in knowing Him that we find eternal life. So if your view of religion is it's how you can regain control and manipulate the good things you want out of life, you are not following Jesus, you're following superstition. And he's warning us that there can be this temptation to view religious life as a way of regaining control. Won't work. Well, secondly, he says, don't be overly wise. And the idea is don't be presumptively wise. Don't have the idea that if you can just learn enough, gain enough wisdom, study enough, that you can take all the risk out of life. Listen, this is a huge temptation for people. So I'll spend the next six months 
studying the safest car, and I'll make sure I buy the safest car, and I won't have to worry about that being a problem in my life, dying from a car accident, and I'll study exercise. If, if I work out for 41 minutes a day at 140 beats per minute, I won't have to worry about the heart problems coming up in my life. And if I can structure my diet and my sleep plan just right, I can take all those problems out of life. Now listen, I'm not saying there's, there's anything wrong with a healthy lifestyle. I've been running for 25 years. But my point is, we can take all that to the extreme where we start trying to do all of that in life because we hope it will somehow insulate us against anything bad happening. If I can just figure out how to work everything in my life, then I can keep problems from happening. But doesn't experience just tell us that's not the way life goes? The guy who started the first fitness boom in the U.S. back in the late 1970s was a guy named Jim Fix. I had a, a running class in college, and I remember my professor talking about Jim Fix. He wrote a book called The Complete Book on Running. And he was one of the early proponents that we need regular exercise. Particularly, he advocated for regular jogging to keep us healthy. And scores of people bought in. And good thing, lots of people. There was a running boom that was created after Jim Fix wrote that book. But Jim Fix actually died when he was 52 years old from a heart attack. A couple years ago, I read the interview of a guy who at the time was the oldest man in America. He lived in Austin. He was a World War II veteran. And in this interview, they were asking him what his daily routine is. And he said that he eats a bowl of ice cream every day, preferably butter pecan ice cream. And he smokes about 12 cigars every day, not, not even good ones. He smokes cheap cigars every day. And he makes sure every morning that he spikes his coffee with whiskey to help warm up his muscles. And that was his routine. Now, again, I'm not, I'm not saying don't worry about health. I'm not, that's not my point. But my point is... If you think that you're somehow going to figure out everything right and learn enough in your life to insulate yourself from ever having anything bad happen and to keep away from the risk and to gain control, you're fooling yourself. Okay, so maybe the answer is just go three sheets to the wind. Okay, Sarah, Sarah, whatever will be, will be. So let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And Solomon says that that's a dead end too. If you live that way... That's going to lead to ruin not only in this life, that's going to lead you to ruin in eternity. So the fact that we can't control our world doesn't mean we should live carelessly in the world. So what is the solution then? Well, here's, here's the solution. Look at verse 18. Here's where that leaves us. It's good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other. So he's saying, hold on to both of these truths. On the one hand, there's nothing you can do to regain control. On the other hand, what we do in the world matters. We're accountable to God. So if, if I'm not in control, but I'm accountable to God, how then do I live? End of the verse. For he who fears God will escape them all. I mentioned earlier that this is the point Solomon comes back to over and over in this book. Fear God. That's the path of true wisdom. I mentioned it earlier. True wisdom starts with acknowledging that I am the creature and I humble myself before my creator. I acknowledge my life is a gift from God. He's the one, not me, who is sovereign over it. And I'm accountable to him for what I do with the life that he's gifted me with. So instead of Instead of trying to manipulate God and instead of trying to outthink God, what the Bible tells us to do to find real contentment is to trust God. That's what real wisdom looks like. 
And real wisdom is immensely valuable. Look at what he says about true wisdom in verse 19. So true wisdom comes from fearing God. In verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. What he's saying is that wisdom that starts with the fear of God will give you more stability and it will give you better decision-making ability than a whole city council's worth of men who don't know God that way. So rather than trying to figure out how to manipulate God, walk in the fear of God. God will not be manipulated. He will be worshipped. That's the first one. Here's the second thing. Number two, you will never be righteous enough. Okay, so Solomon's going to come back to why we can't regain control through our own righteousness. Look at what he says in verse 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. He's given us another reason why our righteousness will never twist God's arm into giving us only good things. The fact of the matter is, there is not a truly righteous man on earth. We all sin. You will never be righteous enough to deserve only good things from God. I said a few minutes ago, we don't want God to deal with us based on what we deserve. You realize that, don't you? Because we're sinners. And what sinners deserve from God is judgment. What sinners deserve from God is hell. Any good thing we get from God is because of mercy, not because of what we deserve. And yet, and even though we would nod our heads, you, you see this worldview come out so often in folks. When something bad happens in my life, and the question is, I don't deserve this. It's this broken view that, that I, because of my righteousness, somehow deserve blessings and health from God. Some of you will remember we did a study through Ligonier Ministries a few years ago. And in that study, R.C. Sproul told the story of a college class that he was teaching. He, he was teaching a, a class of freshman students. He had 250 freshmen in this class. And so the very first day of the class, he had all the students take out their syllabus, and he went through the plan for the semester, that there would be three main term papers that would be due. The first term paper was due September 30th. The second term paper was due October 30th. And the third term paper was due on November 30th. 250 freshmen. Well, he said the September 30th rolled around, the day of the first term paper being due, and 225 students turned in their term paper. And the other 25 students came in the room just begging, Dr. Sproul, please, we weren't used to college life and we don't know how to manage our schedule yet, please give us more time. And so he said, okay, you have to the end of the week. And they, they thanked him profusely for being kind to them. Day for the second term paper rolled around, October 30th. And this time he said 200 students turned in their paper, 50 students didn't have their paper ready. And they came in again saying, please, Dr. Sproul, it was homecoming week and we had midterms to study for. Please give us more time. And so he said, okay, you have to the end, end of the week. And so they, again, praised him for his, his kindness to him. Well, now date for the final term paper rolls around, November 30th. And he said, this time 150 students turned in their term paper. 100 students didn't bring a paper to class. And he said when he asked them where they, their papers were, they just kind of brushed him off and said, oh, don't worry about it, we'll have it to you by the end of the week. And he said he sat down at his desk and pulled out his grade book and said, Johnson, you don't have your paper, that's an F. Miller, you don't have your paper, that's an F. And he said there was just an outcry in the room. Wait, that's not fair. 
And he said he stopped and said, oh, it's fairness that you want. It's justice you're after, huh? Okay, well, Johnson, you didn't turn your paper in in time in October either. I'm going to change that grade to an F. That would be fair. And Miller, you didn't turn in your paper in time in September. I'm going to change that grade to an F. And he said the room just went deathly quiet. It showed him mercy the first time, and they had gotten where they expected it. They presumed upon it like he owed them mercy. He didn't owe them that. What they deserved for not having their paper, what they deserved for that was to get a failing grade. He had showed them mercy. Well, we can get that way with God. Every good thing we have is owed to his mercy, but sinners aren't owed anything from God. Every blessing we have is a gift of grace. So Solomon is saying, recognize there's no one who's righteous. Don't assume for a minute that you're righteous enough that you're owed something. Verses 21 and 22. Also, do not take heart to everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. So just in case you were to doubt that we're all sinners... Solomon's going to give us proof, and he's going to give us proof by pointing right in between our teeth. So just ignore for a second all the sins of thought and all the sins of activity. And Solomon says, let's think for a minute just about what we say. Have you ever overheard somebody talking bad about you? Or maybe word got back to you that somebody had been running you down? How do you tend to respond when that happens? Overreact a little bit? Get defensive, or my tendency is not to get defensive, to get offensive. Well, they said that. Let me tell you about them. Maybe hold on to it and brood over it for the next three months. Solomon says, actually, when that happens, you shouldn't take it to heart. Why? Because Solomon says, you've done the same thing. You've gossiped. You've talked behind people's back. There have been times where in the heat of the moment, I was emotional, and I said something about somebody I didn't really even mean. So if it ever got back around to them, I hope they would just brush it aside. Meanwhile, I hear somebody said something bad about me, and I fixate on it for the next three nights. I can't sleep. I'm so angry about it. Well, we tend to judge others a lot more harshly than than we want to be judged. So before you drop the hammer on someone else because of their sin against you, Remember how often you've sinned against others in exactly the same way. Remember, remember, there's not a righteous man on the earth, including you. And that's one of the proofs. So you'll never be righteous enough. Secondly, you'll never be wise enough. And again, this is in context of gaining control of your life. Solomon comes back to wisdom in verse 23. All this I've proved by wisdom. I said I'll be wise. But it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. So we're back to what Solomon started with. He started with the idea that maybe I can learn enough, maybe I can gain enough knowledge that I can regain control over my life. Well, if there was ever anyone positioned to be wise enough to answer all of life's questions, it was Solomon. The Bible points to Solomon as, at least up to the time of Jesus, the the wisest man who had ever lived. People traveled from all over 
just to get a sight of Solomon's wealth and to ask questions to test out Solomon's wisdom. So Solomon thought, I'll throw myself into study. He mentioned this back in, I think it was chapter 2. He was going to throw himself into study and education, and that's how he was going to gain control over his world. But what was the bottom line that he found? Solomon said, it is exceedingly deep. Who can find it out? Meaning, Solomon applied himself to wisdom, but he never found the answers to all of his questions. And you won't either. If you think you can read enough and study enough and gain enough knowledge to finally make sense out of everything in life, where all of your questions are answered and you're able to fit everything that happens in life into a neat little file folder in your mind, you will eventually run up against the same wall that Solomon ran up against. You'll realize how limited your wisdom really is. You'll, you'll realize that the, the limits of man's knowledge are a lot shorter than you ever dreamed that they would be. And that's actually one of the keys to real wisdom. John Calvin called it learned ignorance. One of the keys to wisdom is you apply yourself until you finally reach the point that you realize how little wisdom you actually have. You reach the point where you realize you don't have all the answers and you never will have all the answers. You'll never figure out all of God's ways. And you learn to be content with that. Now again, just like I wasn't denigrating health or I'm not denigrating study. It's great. Apply yourself. Study. Education is good. All that's fantastic. But we can view that as the means of regaining control. Like this will put me back in top and I can protect anything bad from happening. And Solomon's saying it won't work. You'll never be wise enough. That leads to the fourth point. Number four. Be aware of spiritual dangers and of your own depravity. Be aware of spiritual dangers and of your own depravity. So not only will you never be able to uh, attain enough righteousness or accrue enough wisdom to answer all the questions and gain control over your world, but we're also in a world with constant spiritual traps. And so you're constantly going to find yourself being tempted to compromise your righteousness. That righteousness you're depending on is going to be chock full of holes. That wisdom you're depending on, you're going to find you're constantly tempted to step off the path of wisdom. And Solomon just highlights one of the temptations that so often traps us. Here's the temptation. And by the way, this is one that Solomon had felt acutely. Verse 26. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. You can almost hear the pain in Solomon's voice. Because you'll remember, if you've been here in our study in 1 Kings, what was, what was one of the traps that Solomon found himself trapped in over and over and over again? Solomon struggled with sexual sin. He constantly caved into lust. He found himself marrying and bringing into his harem all sorts of idolatrous women who worshipped all kinds of false gods. And Solomon says that path is more bitter than death. And he describes this temptation as if it is a woman who is dressed out to be a skilled hunter. Now if a woman was writing this, she might say the same thing about a man. But Solomon pictures this woman who has every sort of hunting tool at her disposal. She has nets, and she has snares, and she has fetters. So she is prepared to trap anyone who happens to come her way. 
And Solomon's seeing lots of people fall into her trap. And he says the end is more bitter than death. This is the consequence of any sin, but he's highlighting sexual sin here, right? That it promises pleasure, it promises fulfillment, in the end it leaves you empty. It promises life, in the end it leads you to death. And he says the only one who can escape is the man who pleases God. That's the man who walks in the fear of God. So, to go back to the point he's making. So for all the folks who depend on their own righteousness and their own wisdom as if that puts them above the fray of the world, Solomon's pointing to just one temptation. And it's like Solomon is saying, watch how many people fall into just this one trap. And there are a million other temptations we could highlight. But person after person who flaunts their wisdom and their righteousness falls into this one snare. Verses 27 and 28. Here's what I found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my, soul, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Now notice, he just said that only the man who pleases God can avoid these traps. But here's the problem. Solomon's looking around and he doesn't see people who actually fit that criteria. So he's looking around at his own royal court. And Solomon says, as I look around at my royal court, I only see maybe one man out of a thousand who has real wisdom. And as he looks around at his royal court, he doesn't see any of the women there who have it. Now, I don't think Solomon is using the word thousand here uh, accidentally. Because you'll remember, that's how many women Solomon had in his harem. He had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And it's like he's looking at all the women he's brought into his court and he doesn't see any of them that he's brought in who have real wisdom. Now, side note, that probably says more about Solomon than it does about these women. right? It's, it's like the young lady who keeps going after godless, immature guys and then comes back going, there are just no good men out there. No, there are good men out there. You just keep going after godless men. There are, there are wise, godly women out there. It just seems that Solomon kept being attracted to the godless women. But his point here is simple enough. How rare it is to find someone who genuinely loves the Lord and walks in the fear of the Lord. He, he hardly ever sees it. It's, he says it's like, it's like Haley's Comet. It comes around once every 75 years. So he's just making a statement here about how fallen humanity is. We need please to please God and godly wisdom to avoid the traps, but it's hard to find real wisdom. Verse 29. Truly, this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Now, notice what he's getting at here. So our problem isn't just all the traps and temptations out there. Our problem isn't just that we live in a crooked world. What's the problem? It's not just that there's crookedness out there. Our ultimate problem is there's crookedness in here. Now Solomon says God made man upright. He's looking back to Genesis 1 and 2. When we're made in the image of God, we're made without sin, but how long does that last? Not even beyond one generation. Man turns away. All we like sheep, Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We went off course. We sinned against our Creator. 
So all the crookedness in our world isn't God's fault. It's our fault. We made a mess out of things. And think of how different that is. We're wrapping up here in five minutes. Stick with me. Think of how different what Solomon is saying here is from the message that you get from our world. The message you get from the world is that your problems, listen, the world is constantly telling you that your problems come from what's around you. It's what's outside of you that has caused all your problems. Your mom and dad didn't hug you enough. And your teachers, they were always against you. And the system is rigged against you. And your boss just never liked you. And it's the world that's against you. That's your problem. That's what the world says. It's what's around you. And so the solution, the world says, is what's in you. Just be true to yourself and believe in yourself. And that's the way through. But Solomon is saying that's, that's both a wrong diagnosis and a wrong cure. Yeah, we're in a wicked world. There's lots of bad things around you and people have done terrible things to you. But that's not the root of your problem. The root of our problem isn't what's out there. The root of our problem is what's in here. We've turned away from God. We've tried to put ourselves on the throne of our lives. I've tried to gain control and say, I will decide how I want to live and I will decide what is best for me. I have broken everything. So I can't fix it. I, so the problem is inside. I need a solution to come from the outside. And the solution is God, only God can fix us. When I finally own up to where I am and stop playing games and stop being the victim and blaming all my problems on everybody around me and own up to my sin before God and look to Jesus as the one who died to pay the debt for it, as the one who rose from the dead to show He's Lord and I trust in Him, give my life to Him, God does this work of remaking me. So the God who Solomon says made man upright, now through Jesus does the work of remaking us upright. So the problem is in me, and I need a solution that will come from outside of me. I need God to fix what we've broken. And that leads us to our last verse. Kind of come back full circle with... Now, what real wisdom benefits? Verse 1 of chapter 8. Who is like a wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine. And the sternness of his face is changed. So we've come back full circle. What we need is real wisdom. So what does real wisdom do? Does, does real wisdom think that it can gain control? That it can answer all the questions? That it can solve all the riddles? No. What Solomon's been saying is real wisdom recognizes our own limitations and our own weaknesses. I'll never have all the answers. I'll never be in control. So real wisdom bows before God in a trembling trust. And Solomon says the person who finds this sort of wisdom, his face shines. Meaning this is the person who finds real contentment. This is the person who finds the secret of life. So I guess here, here would be the closing message. Stop wrestling for control. Stop trying to manipulate God. That will leave you frustrated and it will leave you bitter. Bow down to God. Wave the white flag and surrender. Own up to your sin and repent of it. Look to Jesus and put your faith in Him. 
In Him is hidden all the wisdom of God. In Him is hidden all the righteousness that we need. So look to Christ. So we're going to take a few minutes to prepare our hearts to come to the Lord's table. To take part in communion as a church family. And communion is a picture of what we just described. We come to the Lord's table, we eat the bread, and we drink the fruit of the vine as a reminder that God has provided everything we need for salvation. We're not figuring out a way to work it up. We're not trying to clear the bar and hope God will give us the extra little boost. We are trusting entirely in what He's done for us. I've abandoned hope in myself, and I'm looking solely to Christ. So take a minute in your seat. Go before the Lord and surrender your heart. Trust Him. Stop fighting for control. Stop complaining about what you don't understand. Surrender to the Lord. Look to Christ in faith. Trust Him. Let's bow together. I'll give you a few minutes to go to the Lord yourself in prayer, and then I'll close this.